0: Listen to Al Mohler's daily briefing, or as Brett likes to call it, the daily dose of discouragement. But you actually don't even have to go that far. You can simply step outside of your house and go talk to your neighbors. Even if your neighbors claim to know and love God, they often have an entirely different view of who God is. The world we live in does not know and love God. And that's nothing new. That should not surprise us. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve's initial sin, mankind has rejected God and mankind has sought to replace God with ourselves. Each son and daughter of Adam since the fall has sought to be God. At at the root of our sinful rebellion against God, at the root of that is the longing to be supreme. We ourselves want to be exalted. We, we yearn for the praise and acceptance of other people. And so instead of living for the God of Scripture, loving him, being devoted to him, submitting to him... We naturally, instinctively, because of our sin and the sinful bent of our heart, we hate God. And that's true of all of mankind apart from God's gracious intervention into the life of a sinner. That, that was true of each of us in this room. Prior to God's saving grace in our lives, we were, Paul describes all of mankind in Romans chapter 1 verse 30 as haters of God. God, haters of God, and yet the sad reality is that the churches in our country, in large part, have sought to make God palatable to people who hate God. In, in pragmatism, in an effort to be appealing to the world, to be attractive to God-hating people, the biblical God has been distorted. Distorted. And what has largely been offered is an idolatrous alternative, and a completely different version of God. If you step into the average church in our country on a Sunday morning, the God you will be presented with is often not the God of the Bible. The God of modern evangelicalism is a neutered, watered down, weak, pathetic, powerless pushover who's really just longing for someone to like him. He really doesn't care about your sin. He'll just overlook it, sweep it under the rug, and, and off you go. He, he really just wants to accept you for who you are. According to this God, the problem isn't you, it's, it's everybody else. This God doesn't care how he is worshipped as long as it feels good to you. This God doesn't care about the Bible. He just wants you to be happy. This God is no God at all. He, he is simply a reflection of sinful, fallen Man. He panders to man. This version of God is not to be worshipped by man, but he himself worships man and does the bidding of mankind. He's either a divine ATM machine, a butler, a life coach, or a friend of unquestioning affirmation. He exists for man. He worships man. He's, he's the God made in the image of fallen man. He's not God, we are. And many of us in this room have experienced this kind of teaching about who God is. Biblical truths about the character and person of God have, have never been unfolded for fear of offending the unbelieving world. What we need is a, a retrieval of A biblical view of God. We need to go to God's word in order to rightly understand and behold who our God is. And not just a biblical view of God, that's that's not enough. We really need to see how who God is actually impacts our daily lives. Theology, the study of, of God, it's never for the sake of theology. Theology for the sake of theology is like putting food in your mouth, tasting it, talking about what it tastes like, and then spitting it out. You just taste it a little bit, you talk about it, and you never actually eat it, you never actually consume it, your body's never actually nourished by what you put in your mouth, and this leads to weak, malnourished Christians with big heads. Theology is always for the purpose of life It's always supposed to impact how we live, doctrine, biblical teaching. It's always supposed to drive and shape our day-to-day lives. And yet again, we so often fail in this regard. So often the problems of our lives result either from a wrong view of God, we're not viewing God rightly as he reveals himself in his word, or we're not taking that knowledge of who God is and actually living in light of it. We might be able to tell you all about who God is and you could pass a theology exam, but then troubles come into your life and you have no idea what to do. And, and the fact that you, the God that you profess has no apparent bearing upon the situations that you face in your life. So this year, in light of these realities of this deficient view of God and an often deficient application to our lives... This year, when the, the other elders and staff are, are filling the pulpit for Brett, as I am uh, this morning, we're, we're seeking to address these very issues. We want to put forward a, a biblical view of who God is, but we also want to take a lot of time and, and just intentionally consider how that impacts our lives, how who God is should shape how we live and so this morning, we're, start, we're starting in Psalm 139, and, and I think rightly so, because this is such a, a magisterial and yet personal, worshipful psalm. A number of, of commentators and pastors throughout church history have actually said something to the effect that, that this is the greatest psalm in the entire book of psalms. This is the highest psalm, and one of the primary reasons they say that is because this psalm in itself exemplifies the approach that we want to take in this series and also in all of life. It is highly theological. It's very theological. There are theological heights in this chapter that we can't comprehend. But in no way is this psalm an abstract regurgitation of theological facts. It is deeply and immensely personal and worshipful. David, the author of this psalm, he sees all of life shaped by the theological realities of who God is that he explains here in this text. And in our section, these first six verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, the focus is very much on God's personal and comprehensive knowledge of his people. It's God's omniscience. Omniscience is just another word for the fact that God is all-knowing. This is God's omniscience applied to his people. That's what we see in these six verses. So so what we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider how we're supposed to live in light of God's knowledge, what we're going to see is two right responses to the all-knowing God. That's our outline for this morning if you want to take notes. Two right responses to the all-knowing God this is how we should respond to the reality that God is all-knowing First behold the all-knowing God behold the all-knowing God If we want to rightly respond if we want to live in light of God's knowledge we need to know about God's knowledge and not just even merely know about it we we need to behold his knowledge not not just ascertain or have the the facts rehearsed to us we need to we need to stare in wonder we need to marvel we need to meditate upon this truth we need to behold the all-knowing God as he reveals himself in this text before us this morning And he very much, he very clearly reveals that he is all-knowing in this passage, doesn't he? Right off the bat there in verse 1, you have this sweeping, all-encompassing, depth-penetrating statement of verse 1. Oh, oh Yahweh, the covenant name of, of God, you have searched me and known me this is not just this is not just a general statement of omniscience god knows everything that that's not what we find here no what is stated here is that god the, the Lord, oh Lord, you see Lord in all caps there. When you see Lord in all caps in, in the Old Testament, that's the way the Hebrew tr- the translators of the Bible are translating God's divine covenant name, Yahweh. That's how he reveals himself. That's the name that he reveals himself with, the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh, the, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, eternally self-existing God, David says here, he the Lord, Yahweh, knows me. He knows me. Now, now of course, the, the me here, it's, it's, it's David, the author of the psalm, but this, this certainly doesn't just apply to him, but to everyone who belongs to the Lord. He says that Yahweh has searched me. He has searched me. And he, he doesn't mean here that, that God had to kind of go looking to figure out uh, who He actually is or as if God's knowledge is dependent on like finding something out and investigation. No, he's saying God's knowledge of me is thorough. God's knowledge of me is as if God had searched me to the deepest depths as if a thorough search had been made of me as a person, he's saying, that's the extent of how well the Lord knows me. It's thorough, it's it's complete. He knows me entirely, as he states again in the second line of verse one there, you have known me, he says. Now this word to know, it, it can have several different nuances to it. It's a really common word in the Old Testament. It, it can just mean simply that you know something, you've observed something, you've, you've learned that something is. It can also have some deeper uh, nuances to it. It can speak of the, the marital union between a husband and his wife. We see this word used in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where it says, now the man Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. But it can also speak of a, a knowing care. Essentially, in this sense, to, to know someone is to take care of them, to care for them. And we see this a number of places in the Old Testament. Just a couple examples Nahum, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. You all spend lots of time in Nahum, I know. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows. Those who take refuge in him. It, what he's saying there is, it's not just that God has a list of people who take refuge in him and he's just gonna check it off like he's taking attendance. And he's just kind of indifferent to it. He's just a computer storing up information. No, God's knowledge of our troubles is, is tied with his compassion, his, his care. This is deep care, affection, protection for his people. Another place is Psalm 31, verse 7. Psalm 31, 7, the psalmist says, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. Is he rejoicing and, and glad in God's steadfast love just because God knows what he's gone through and it's just mere facts that God knows? No, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's compassionate care. He he knows in the deepest way possible and cares about our troubles and our afflictions and what we're going through. The Lord knows us in this way. Can can we just slow down and stop for a minute? I I think we just skip over these profound truths and don't actually stop to take the time to reflect upon that reality. How how precious should this truth be to you that the lord knows you in this way the the lord god the the creator the sustainer of the universe the god of his word, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who parted the, the Red Sea, the God who delivered Israel time and time again, the God who patiently pled with his people to return to him through the prophets, the God who, who sent them into exile and brought them Back the God who promised redemption and salvation through substitutionary sacrifice, who who promised to take people dead in their sins to make them alive, to give them His spirit to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, the God who sent his own Son as that substitutionary sacrifice and, and raised him from the dead, the God who who sent his spirit to to bring us to life to indwell us, to guide us through his word, the God who established the church, the God who made you, the God who has providentially governed all of your life, who brought you here this morning, the God who will bring justice upon his enemies and, and make all things right and glorious forever. He knows you. He knows you. He knows you deeply. He knows you personally. He knows you better than anybody else. He knows you thoroughly and completely. He knows your sin. He knows your struggle against sin. He he knows your hurt. He he knows the suffering that you've gone through. He knows what you've been through. He knows you comprehensively. And this isn't, again, this is not an indifferent set of facts to God. God. He's not indifferent. His knowledge is full of care and compassion. We need to behold the all-knowing God who who knows you personally and comprehensively. Verses two to four give more specific examples of, of God's personal, comprehensive knowledge of his people. Verse two, he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, My translation would say, you yourself know my sitting and my rising. There's an added pronoun here in the in the Hebrew that most of the translations omit, but but it's there for a reason. It's there for emphasis. He's saying, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You yourself, you yourself, you know my sitting and my rising. It's like David, he can't get over the reality that, that we've been stewing on that God himself knows him personally and extensively. God does not, he does not delegate his knowledge or his care of us. It's not like God sends out you know, data gatherers to kind of fig, to find out about us, to report back to him and, and tell him about who we are. No, he himself is personally involved and invested in knowing us all the time all the time. That's the emphasis, my sitting and and my rising, no matter where I am, what I'm doing, where I'm going, how I'm resting or running, God knows. God knows all of our movement, all of our activity, righteous and unrighteous, and all of our inactivity, righteous and unrighteous. He knows and watches over us like a father who knows and watches over his child, Like a father watching over his 18-month-old fall down and get up. He knows when he's standing, when he's sitting, when he's resting. Like a father watching his precious daughter as she sleeps. Our Heavenly Father is a perfect version of that. He watches over us. He knows us perfectly with all-knowing, compassion-filled eyes and omnipotent hands to come to our aid. But his knowledge extends beyond merely the the external and and what could be seen outside. He understands our thoughts from afar. He knows our thoughts from afar. He has insights into our inner man. The the word for thoughts, it's not just about thinking, although it encompasses that. It's an umbrella of a variety of internal workings. It's our thoughts. It's our it's our desires, it's our wants, our intentions. It's, it's what we purpose, what we plan, what we long for. And again, <laughs> this is not just mere data for the detached mind of God. No, he says he understands our thoughts, he discerns, he pays heed, pays attention to to what exactly we're thinking and wanting and why. He knows our motives, he knows our internal anguish, our restlessness, our sinful thoughts, our desires, our anxieties, our thoughts of depression. He knows when we're thinking of him and when we're truly seeking to do his will, he knows when we bow our wills in faith to his will. And we say, not my will, but yours be done. And he knows all of this, he says, from afar. He knows it from afar. And this isn't speaking of distance in, in space, as the next stanza of Psalm 139 makes clear, the, the, the Lord's presence is near and inescapable. He's, he's never far away from us in distance and space. No, from afar, it's referencing time from from before the foundation of the world the lord knew you and your thoughts the lord knew how you work internally and what you long for and how you think and why you think that way before we ever were he knew the depths of the inner workings of our hearts and minds personally and specifically he he knows how you tick he knows your, your daily routine. He, he observes that with intentional care. No, no day escapes his notice. That, that's verse three. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. The word for the, this, the New American Standard translates as scrutinize. It could kind of go two different ways. It's only used here in the, in the Old Testament, so there's kind of some debate on what this word means. It either has its roots in the word for, for winnowing, like how the, the wind would blow out the, the chaff from the grain, and so it's a sifting, scattering kind of thing, and that's how the New American Standard takes it. Or it could come for a word that means to, to measure or a span, and so the New English translation translates it you carefully observe my path. You're measuring each step and action in my resting. I prefer the the New English Translation's take on you carefully observe my. Path, but, but either way, again in verse 3, we see how the Lord knows all about us. Our ways, our life, our actions, our behaviors, our, our journeys, where we go, our wanderings, how we think, how we live, what we do, our sleep, our resting. It is all fully and completely known to the Lord. He even knows our words before we speak them, as verse 4 tells us. He knows all that we have said Every whispered word, every word we've said under our breath when we're alone, every grumble or complaint, every breath that cries out to him in faith under trial, but even every word we've thought of saying or will say, he he knows them all. His knowledge of us is incomprehensible and inescapable. God with his knowing care, he he surrounds us as he says in verse 5, you have enclosed me behind and before. His knowledge besieges us. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. His very hand is upon us as verse 5 says. The word here in verse 5 is used to speak of Jacob when he placed his hands on Joseph's sons to bless them. Similarly, speaking of himself, David says in Psalm 21, Psalm 21 verse three, he says, for you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. And then in verse six of Psalm 21, he says, you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. So his hand being laid upon us is his hand of knowledge and comfort and blessing and guidance. God's personal knowledge of his people is infinite and boundless, surrounding, inescapable, internal, external, every possible thing that could be known about you. The Lord knows it. We must truly behold the wonder that our God knows us personally. His omniscience is not just a fact to know, an attribute along the list of who God is. It's a truth we must behold. But we also must live in light of his omniscience. That brings us to our second point, the second right response to the all-knowing God. Secondly, live before the all-knowing God. Live before the all-knowing God. All of life, every day, should be shaped by the reality that God is all-knowing and personally, caringly all-knowing. But how? How how should the all-knowingness, the omniscience of God, shape our lives? Well, there are so many implications of what we've studied so far, uh, but I was able to narrow my list down from about 20. I've got nine this morning. So nine ways knowing God is all-knowing should impact our lives. These are just implications of what we've seen so far in Psalm 139. How should we live in light of God's omniscience? Well, here's nine ways we should live in light of God's omniscience. First, look to God for all you need look to god for all that you need and i and i must instantly clarify that i mean look to god both to identify your needs and to meet those needs because we so often look to god for what we think we need but we're not all knowing We're not all-knowing, so even our perception of our needs is skewed. We don't know ourselves as well as God knows us. We don't know what we actually need. But since God is all-knowing, he knows what we need. And he knows how and when to give us what we need. Jeremiah aptly demonstrates this in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, this is a familiar verse to many of us, it says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are so deceitful and wicked, we can't understand our own hearts. We should not follow our own hearts. Sorry, Disney. No, we should not follow our hearts. We can't even understand the deception and sinfulness in the depths of our hearts. But verse 10 of Jeremiah 17 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows the deceitfulness of your hearts. Our our hearts, one of the the factors of deception in our hearts is that it tricks us into trusting in ourselves and looking to ourselves both to identify and meet our needs. But the Lord, he knows our hearts. He he is not deceived as we are. So we have to look to him to identify and meet our needs. And according to God, in his word, what is our greatest need? What's our greatest need? Salvation. We, we think we need all kinds of things, and yet we often overlook the desperate plight that we're in, that we need God to save us. Jesus said in Luke 5, 31 and 32, he said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We need a physician for our souls. We need a physician for our souls, and Jesus is that physician who came to bring the cure. He came to call sinners to repentance. That's our need, and Jesus meets that need. What we need is Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. We we need his right standing, his perfect obedience before the Father, We need his wrath atoning death. We need his resurrection. We need to trust completely in him and turn from sin and self to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. We need his spirit to bring us from spiritual death to life and to empower us to live lives of obedience and holiness. We need his body, the church. We need his under shepherds elders to model and teach his truth to us we need his word to bring salvation and sanctification to us through his spirit god knows you he knows what you need and he himself sufficiently provides all that we need through christ so 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 don't let other voices define what you need who else is omniscient Who else is omniscient? Who else knows you like God knows you? Nobody. Nobody. Not psychologists, sociologists, politicians, social media personalities. They don't know what you need. Nor do they have the answers to your deepest needs. And notice, their answer to what you need is always themselves. (laughs) No, God's omniscience is the foundation for his sufficiency and the sufficiency of his word. We must look to God for all that we need. Secondly, and similarly, humbly recognize your limited knowledge. Humbly recognize your limited knowledge in the face of divine omniscience, our thoughts of grandeur and splendor and how smart we are, really fall flat on their face. We're often so arrogant about how much we know. We think we know everything. And as soon as we come to a place where we think we have things figured out, we're stepping into a dangerous place of of arrogance. And this is, again, simply the deceitfulness of sin if we convince ourselves that we know what we need we're not going to look to god for what we need we're going to look to ourselves the omniscience of god should it should humble us to recognize that all human knowledge is severely limited in comparison with divine omniscience so instead of striving after omniscience as we often do which only leads to being anxious we should strive for humble dependence. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. Philippians 4 6 and 7 he says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses I think a better translation is which is better than all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're so often, what makes us anxious is what we don't know. What we don't know about. We don't know what's going to happen about fill in the blank. And so we're anxious about it. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm all wrapped up and I'm fearful of what's going to happen because I don't know. Well, Paul's instructing us here in Philippians for that, instead of being anxious, we, we should look to God in humble, dependent, thankful prayer. And what God gives us as we look to him in humility and thankfulness, what he gives us is, a, is his peace, which is better than all understanding. It's better than understanding everything and knowing everything of what's going to happen or could happen or will happen. That's not our role that's not our lane. God has not designed us to be omniscient. We can't be. If God somehow were to infuse our minds with his omniscience, I think they would just explode. No, we, we can't and, and won't and we have no capacity for God's omniscience. So we should humbly trust in the Lord because he's the one who perfectly knows all things. Thirdly, we should pray. That's right on the heels there, Philippians 4, but we should pray. Oftentimes, though, we pray as if God doesn't know. We we pray as if God needed to be informed of our needs and requests. Jesus says that's not how we're supposed to pray, because God knows all that we need. So Matthew 6, 7 and 8, Jesus says, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So then are we just not not supposed to pray? Because God already knows what we need, so why, why should I bring my requests to the Lord? No, That's the wrong question. The opposite is actually true. The the fact that God is all-knowing should fuel our prayer life. The Puritan Stephen Charnock helpfully explains this. He says, Prayer was not appointed for God's information as if he were ignorant, but for the expression of our desires, not to furnish him with a knowledge of what we want, but to manifest to him by some rational sign convenient to our nature, our sense of that want, which he knows by himself. So that prayer is not designed to acquaint God with our wants, but to express the desire of a remedy of our wants. God knows our wants, but he has not made promises barely to our wants, but to our asking, that his omniscience in hearing, as well as his sufficiency in supplying, may have a sensible honor in our acknowledgments and receipts. It's therefore an ill use of this excellency of God to neglect prayer to him as needless because he knows already. More simply put, we don't pray to inform God. We pray for our good and to honor God and in line with his promises. So we should pray because God is omniscient. Fourth, confession and repentance. Repentance. Because God is omniscient, that should lead us to confession and repentance. It is a folly to try to hide our sin. It's foolishness. He knows. The Lord knows every sin, every sinful deed, every sinful thought, every sinful desire, He knows. Nothing is hidden from his sight. James Boyce notes that God's omniscience in this way, it can be unsettling, can't it? He notes that in our shame, just like Adam and Eve, we don't we don't want anybody to know. And so we, like they, try to hide. We try to hide it from others. We try to hide it from God. Sometimes we try to hide it from ourselves, convince ourselves that we haven't really sinned or our sin isn't really that bad. Sin makes us want to hide and not be seen or known. This is, James Boyce points out a number of ways that this is just seen in everyday interaction. How uncomfortable do you get when somebody just stares at you endlessly? Why do you start to squirm? Why do you start to to squirm? Why do we not make our houses of glass? Why do we have doors, external and internal, in our homes? Why do we have curtains, and shower curtains? Why? We don't want to be known. None of that was needed before the fall commenting on this uh, James Boyce he says it's an awareness of the knowledge of God as well as his sovereignty and holiness that produces anxiety and even dread in fallen men and women he knows he knows and you can't hide it's going to be revealed so confess confess bring it to the lord in confession and repentance repentance don't hide bring it to the light and take hope in this christian and and non-christian alike knowing all of your sin did not stop the father from sending his son that did not stop him from sending his son that does not stop him from calling out to you repent confess your sin and be saved he still extends mercy And grace, so repent and receive mercy. Confess and forsake your sin and obtain mercy through his son. And what hope even in an ongoing way for Christians in particular? He's not gonna turn away from you. He he already knows. He already knows. He saved you knowing your sinfulness, knowing even how you would sin after he has saved you. He saved you knowing that. A.W. Tozer, he notes, he says, No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No foreign, no forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected unsus- weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us, since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us what joy what confidence we can have in light of God's omniscient mercy and grace we, we can be known by God through Christ and not fear and not hide this should completely do away with hypocrisy in our lives Hypocrisy dies in the face of an all-knowing God. You can't put on a mask in front of God that he doesn't see through. So we should be sincere and honest people. Don't try to put on a show. Don't put on a mask. As the Puritan Thomas Watson says, in light of God's omniscience, you should be what you seem. Be what you seem. Don't try to seem like you're something other than what you are. God knows. God's omniscience should lead us to confession and repentance and a life of sincerity. Fifth, rejoice that God knows your obedience. Rejoice that God knows your obedience. God knows every act of obedience and righteousness that goes unnoticed and unapplauded or that receives scorn and hatred from the world, he sees that in his children. He knows it. He loves it. So rejoice. God God knows. God sees your obedience. There's a heavenly reward waiting. You don't need the praise and acceptance of men in the here and now. He knows your unseen obedience. And he knows even the intentions we have to obey. He, he knows the frailty of our obedience. He knows the imperfection of our obedience and he's patient with us. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself, he knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. We're but dust. He knows we're weak. He knows he sees when we're striving to obey and yet it's imperfect. He knows that. Again, Thomas Watson helpfully says, God is of infinite knowledge. He can spy grace where you cannot. He can see grace hid under corruption as the stars may be hid under a cloud." God can see that holiness in you, which you cannot discern in yourself. He can spy the flower of grace in you, though overtopped with weeds. God sees some good thing in his people when they can see no good in themselves. And though they judge themselves, he will give them an absolution. Our Heavenly Father sees our imperfect yet grace-wrought works of obedience as his children, and he's pleased. Our works don't earn his favor, that, that comes through Christ. But as his adopted children, our father is pleased with our efforts and he knows them although they are imperfect. Like a father who, whose child brings them a picture that they colored, you know, and it's very imperfect. The coloring is outside the lines and the people are blue and they have red eyes and it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's no work of art. And yet, and yet the child brings it to the father and look, dad, look what I did for you. That father doesn't go, what garbage. That was pathetic. Try again. No, no, that father is so pleased, especially seeing the child work on that picture and, and trying to draw and then bring it to dad with a face full of joy and here you go, dad. No, our father... Our Heavenly Father is pleased with the imperfect actions of His children. So, our Father is pleased with our genuine, dependent efforts. Sixth, receive comfort in suffering. Receive comfort in suffering. The Lord knows your suffering, the Lord knows your pain. He knows the the hard things and the the bitterness that you've had to endure in this life. Psalm 56 verse 8, he says, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God, the picture here is that God keeps track of every tear you cry they're all recorded they're all known to him every tear you've shed every sleepless night every hurtful word that's been said to you every physical pain every medical challenge and complication every trial every suffering every hostility you've faced every challenging family relationship he knows and and again His knowledge is not just, yeah, I know about that. No, he knows, he cares. And not only does he know it, but he's actually ordained it for you in his omniscience, his wisdom and his love. Whatever he has ordained for us, he has ordained it for our good and he knows what's best for us because he knows us best so we can trust him in the midst of any trial it it is true we're often sometimes we're tempted to to twist the truth nobody knows what i've gone through nobody knows my suffering nobody knows my pain nobody has experienced what i've experienced there's a there's a nugget of truth in that isn't there i haven't walked in your shoes i don't know what you've gone through i don't know what it's like to experience what you've experienced as you've experienced it but oftentimes we take that truth and we twist it and we isolate ourselves from everybody else and we say you don't know what I'm going through you can't help me you can't come alongside me because you don't know that's that's the wrong response God knows doesn't he God knows exactly and the all-knowing God has has placed you in the body in the church around others whom he instructs to come alongside you and comfort you in whatever trial or suffering, no matter how unique or bizarre or whatever it is. He knows and that's what he's said is good for you. Listen, listen to Second Corinthians chapter one. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ Christ. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. One of the reasons we go through affliction and trial and trouble is so that we receive the comfort of God and so that we can then turn that around and reflect that back to others going through suffering. We can comfort them with, with, with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Or as we recently saw in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're to comfort one another with the hope of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. These are God's instructions that he gives us in his omniscience. He knows, he knows our suffering and so he knows what we need and what we need is to be comforted in our trials and afflictions through the work of the body of Christ. We should be comforted in our suffering knowing that it's at the hand of the all-knowing God that we're suffering and the all-knowing God places us in the body so we can comfort one another. Seventh, we need to live under his watchful eye. To live under his watchful eye. We should live, you should live your life conscious that God is watching you. Live all of life under the eye of God because he is. He is watching. He does know. In this regard, I can't improve on J.C. Ryle. He he was an Anglican bishop at the turn of the century between the 18th and 1900s. uh, J.C. Ryle's counsel to young men, he says this, he says, for another thing, resolve never to forget the eye of God. The eye of God. Think of that. Everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, and they are eyes that read hearts as well as actions. He goes on, he says, Endeavor, I beseech you all to realize this fact. Recollect that you have to do with an all-seeing God, a God who never slumbereth nor sleepeth, a God who understands your thoughts afar off and with whom the night shines as the day. You may leave your father's roof and go away like the prodigal into a far country and think there is nobody to watch your conduct, but the eye and ear of God are there before you. You may deceive your parents or employers. You may tell them falsehoods and be one thing before their faces and another behind their backs, but you cannot deceive God. He knows you through and through. He heard what you said as you came here today. He knows what you're thinking of at this minute. He set your most secret sins in the light of his countenance, and they will one day come out before the world to your shame, except you take heed. He says, how little is this really felt? How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transacted in the chambers of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blush to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable, driveling folly is all this? There's an all seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, draw down the blinds, shut the shutters, put out the candle, turn off the light. It matters not, it makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, Hebrews 4.13. He says, well, did young Joseph understand this when his mistress tempted him? There was no one in the house to see them, no human eye to witness against them. But Joseph was one who lived as seeing him that is invisible. He says, how can I do this great wickedness, said he, and sin against God? He says, young men, this applies to all of us, obviously. He says, I ask you all to read Psalm 139. I advise you all to learn it by heart. Make it the test of all your dealings in this world's business. Say to yourself often, do I remember that God sees me? Do you remember that God sees you in everything? He says, live as in the sight of God that's what Abraham did. He walked before him. This is what Enoch did. He walked with him. This is what heaven itself will be, the eternal presence of God. He says, do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing you would not like God to hear. Write nothing you would not like God to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book. And in our day, look at nothing on a screen of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? (laughs) He knows. He knows all of life should be lived under the eye of God as if we're living before the face of God because we are. This is the exhortation of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5 to his son after warning his son of the dangers of adultery and also extolling his son to partake and enjoy of the sexual bliss of holy marital union. Solomon warns his son again in Proverbs. 5 verse 20, he says, For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. What do you do that you think God doesn't see? He sees all. In the very next chapter of the book of Proverbs, Solomon instructs his son to work in light of God's omniscience. To work in light of God's omniscience, Proverbs 6 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief officer or ruler, she prepares her food in the summer, she gathers her provision in the harvest. What's he saying? What's the lesson you're supposed to learn from the ant? Well, the ant doesn't have some taskmaster or boss looking over its shoulder to make sure that it, it does its work. No, the ant labors in the fear of God. I think that's the lesson he's telling us we should get from the ant. Labor because God is watching. Work because God is watching. He sees your efforts. Live under God's all-knowing eye. Everything, all of life, Your work, your parenting, your marriage, how you speak to your spouse, how you talk to your kids, all of it, it's under God's eye. Live like it. Eighth, apply his omniscience to every other attribute. Apply his omniscience to every other attribute. What what I mean by this is, is that every attribute of God informs every other attribute that he possesses. So every other attribute of God is impacted by his infinite knowledge. As we've even thought about already this morning, the grace that he extends is according to his knowledge. The the discipline, the chastening that he brings into our lives when we go astray is according to his omniscience. The justice and the wrath that he pours out on sinners is because he has omniscience. He knows everything that they've done and he knows perfectly what they deserve. We don't get to decide what is fair and right and just. We we don't know everything, but God does. And he's revealed that in his word and he's revealed that righteous standard completely and supremely at the cross. Sin demands a penalty. It demands that God's wrath be satisfied. So the, the cross, as Romans 3 tells us, was to show God's righteousness, that God always does what is right, so he can justify sinners, although they deserve his wrath, and then his justice is also carried out on those who do not look to the Son in faith. All of that's according to his omniscience. Stephen Charnock again helpfully notes, he says, His compassions to pity us, his readiness to relieve us, his power to protect and assist us would be insignificant without his omniscience to inform his goodness and direct the arm of his power. Without this knowledge of his, no comfort could be drawn from any other perfection of God. We need to see all of who God is in light of all that God knows, and that is that he is all-knowing. Ninth, and finally, we should stand in awe. We should stand in awe before the all knowing God. This was David's response to God's incomprehensible, inexhaustive, comprehensive knowledge of Him in Psalm 139. That's what he says in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high. I cannot attain to it. We should stand in awe at God's limitless, unfathomable knowledge. We we should fear the Lord, his immensity, his eternality is displayed in his omniscience. We cannot comprehend this. It's too wonderful for us. We cannot name it. It's beyond our language. He is beyond us. And yet his knowledge of us is so personal. It's so personal. Being transcendent and holy and eternal and unreachable and inexhaustible and infinite in his knowledge, yet he stoops and involves himself and knows each of us personally. He stoops to care for us. We should stand in awe before this omniscient God. And we should pray even as David does at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 23. Search me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God, know me more. Continue to know me. Continue to expose what I need and where I lack and how you abundantly and sufficiently provide for what I desperately need. We need to live in light of God's omniscience. In summary of how we should live in light of God's knowledge, Charles Spurgeon comments on Psalm 139. He says, this should fill us with awe so that we sin not, with courage, so that we fear not, with delight, so that we mourn not. God's omniscience should fill us with awe so that we don't sin, with courage so we don't fear, and with delight so that we don't need to mourn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you...